Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the busy congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia's Gru- Eurasia Group's United States Practice. He leads the coverage of politics and policy in Washington. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson joined the conversation. Prior to joining the uh, Eurasia Group, uh, Lieber worked for uh, a dozen years at the highest levels of the United States government including as an economist on the Ways and Means Committee, an associate director at the National Economic Council at the White House, and a senior economic policy advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. So, John, Tori, and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Hello. Thanks, Bob. Uh, John, we have less than two weeks left in the fiscal year, and so far... None of the annual appropriation bills have been passed by both the House and Senate. In fact, I think the House has passed just one of the bills and maybe the Senate hasn't passed any, uh, you know, through the House, through the Senate floor. So that alone might not be too bad uh, if it weren't for the fact that they haven't agreed on an overall number that they're working off of. So the Senate and the House are actually uh, approaching it from, well, they're very different bills. So, you know, um, <laughs> they're back at work this week. What's your sense of uh, whether the House is, let, let's just start with the House and see if you think th- they can uh, get their act together. Uh, yeah, thanks, Bob. So you mentioned the total breakdown in the annual appropriations process. And really, that's not that new. I mean, we know that uh, the budget process has been pretty broken for a while since the 1974 Budget Act passed, you know, 40 plus years ago. Uh, I mean, th- this this process is, has has almost never worked on time where they've actually passed the done the budget, passed the appropriations bills, and done everything in, in advance of October one, which is the deadline for the fiscal new year. So the fact that we're seeing complete dysfunction around. Uh, the budget process isn't that new. What is new, however, is that the Republicans themselves are completely unable to align around a vision of what they want to do uh, for the government. And you know, in the debt limit bill that passed earlier this year, there was a you know bill passed by the House, passed by the Senate, uh, signed by the President that did agree on basically flat funding for non-defense spending and a modest 3% increase for defense spending, which should have been the guidepost uh, that guide the FY24 appropriations process that we're in the middle of. But there's a group of Republicans in the House who aren't happy with those numbers and are pressuring House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in order to get deeper cuts or other policy concessions related to the border or related to the investigations into President Donald Trump and a whole bunch of other stuff that they're fighting for that doesn't seem like it's going to come together because there just aren't the votes in the House and Senate to do it. So right now, it looks like a bit of a mess. 
I mean, they still have basically two weeks left in order to um, agree on something. And I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than a lot of other analysts who are watching this because we sort of had played this game before and we know that the House Republicans who don't like what's being put forward and don't like what was agreed to in the debt limit bill are never going to vote for a government funding bill. And we also know that there's a majority in the House and a 60 vote majority in the Senate that would vote for an appropriations bill that hit those levels already agreed to in the debt limit bill. So we kind of know what the last page of the book looks like. It's just a matter of how we get there. And right now we're in the middle of kind of the high levels of drama that are sometimes involved in uh, working out a resolution. And just a couple of uh, timing points here <laughs> that uh, that I should have mentioned is that right now the immediate crisis is to pass what's called a continuing resolution, which would keep funding going beyond September 30th. Uh, when it runs out, nobody thinks that they're going to be able to get a deal on all of the 12 annual bills, full year funding before then. So step one that they're working on now is to try to get a deal on a continuing resolution, which is difficult enough. Then if they get that, they'll go back to work on the full year funding bills. And we could be doing this all over again, you know, in October or December or whenever they do a, a short term continuing resolution. So um uh, on that CR, just uh, are there points, major sticking points between what is developing in the House and what's developing in the Senate? Um, so, as I understand it, the big sticking points in the House are that they're looking for, you, you know, in order to. So uh, they've got about two weeks left to pass something. They can either do a CR continuing resolution where basically they continue funding the government at its current levels for a brief period of time while they work out an agreement on these broader bills. Uh, that is what Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, is pushing this week to get the House to rally around a CR that buys some time to work out the bigger bills uh, or do a full year CR if that's what it comes down to. And in order to kind of entice Republicans to vote for that, he's including uh, some budget riders uh, on uh, immigration and a, and a handful of other issues. And a lot of those things are, are basically toxic to the Senate Democrats. And in the Senate, where the Democrats control the chamber, you need, you know, you're expected to get probably 40 to 50 votes from Democrats. So you can't pass a very partisan House bill uh, through the Senate. So even if Republicans could agree to do something on the CR, um, that bill is not going anywhere in the Senate anyway. So this, this is really just a negotiating position for the House to pass. And it's in, and there's kind of two scenarios. One is where the House is able to rally around the CR that includes, like it's a short-term funding bill, it includes these policy riders, and then that gives the House a negotiating position to go to the Senate with, and then they work out an agreement, presumably after some period of time. Or the House can't rally around, which I, I think probably is more likely right now, is the House can't pass a bill and then the Senate can. And then the only bill in town that could become law is what the Senate has passed, which is probably going to be like a flat funding bill, a flat funding CR that goes till November or December. And they use the extra two, two to three months to work out an agreement on the other bills. That's probably the end game here. And the question is, how much pain do they have to go through to get there? So we'll know later this week if the House can pass this bill or if they can't. And then that will help determine sort of their negotiating leverage around what they eventually pass into law. Tori. 
Yeah. So if the House can't pass something and the Senate can, is it possible for the Senate to go first? You know, we always hear about, you know, uh, tax and spending bills have to originate in the House. Is it possible for the Senate to say, tick tock, tick tock, we've waited long enough for you guys. You haven't got your work done. We're sending something over to you and you're going to need to pass this. Can they go first? I don't know the answer to that. Mechanically, I mean, always um, happens is the House has passed a bill. So like, you know, basically the what Tori is referring to is the Constitution says spending and revenue measures have to come out of the House first. And uh, but there's plenty of cases, I believe, where the Senate has gone first is either originated an appropriations bill that then gets amended or they find some other bill to tax something into. So mechanically, I, I think that if they if the politics dictate the Senate must go first, they will find a way to make that happen. So I'm not I, mm-hmm. I think that they almost certainly could if they needed to. Got it. Got it. In, in your mind at this point, do you see uh, everything coming together for a continuing resolution at the last minute that averts a shutdown or are you betting on a shutdown? I still I mean, I think it's probably a 50 50 proposition at this point. A lot of other people I've talked to think that, you know, just see a shutdown as inevitable, including I've heard from several um, members of the House and Senate that they just think a shutdown's coming and there's nothing you can do about it. And you have to just kind of bite the bullet and uh, live with it. But like I said earlier, we know the votes exist in the House and Senate to avert a shutdown if Kevin McCarthy wants to. The challenge for McCarthy is because you have this group of Republicans who are never going to vote for any appropriations bill because it's never going to be good enough. He has to do that with Democratic votes. And if he passes a bill with Democratic votes, then he runs the risk of one of his own members threatening to trigger this thing called a motion to vacate the chair, which would basically cost him his job as speaker. Um, And that's a whole other set of dynamics that McCarthy has to deal with. But my guess is that sometime in the next 12 days that they have until the shutdown is looming, that uh, the House probably can't pass their CR, the Senate can, and then it's up to McCarthy who wants to avoid a shutdown, and I think is actually in a reasonably strong position among Republicans to keep his job, ends up putting the Senate bill on the floor they then fund the government and they live to fight another day. So the biggest argument I see right now for a CR getting through the House at the last final moment, you know, what, you, probably one that comes through the Senate, is unlike prior years when there have been shutdowns, uh, and this this is thinking from somebody smarter than I, but I think it makes sense. Um, there was a unifying argument. You know, Republicans have closed, shuttered the government over trying to block the implementation of Obamacare. They've shuttered the government because of issues over border, you know, trying to build funding for create funding for a border wall along the southern border when we had, you know, massive amounts of immigration running across. At this point in time, it's really hard to come up, or at least I don't see a compelling argument coming from Republicans as to why they would shut the government down, because it seems like every faction within House Republicans wants something different. So it's really hard to go to Joe Voter and say, this is why we're shutting the government down. Do you, th- I mean, do you see some legs in that argument? Yeah, but I see, I see that as an argument for why they would just pass the CR because exactly. your average, your like median member of the house just thinks this is silly, doesn't agree with any of the arguments, like probably wants to do things like fund Ukraine, uh, fund operations in Ukraine and do disaster relief and kind of all the other pieces that would move with the CR and just finds these outside agitators kind of annoying because they're basically saying we're not going to agree to do anything and they're acting kind of like nihilists. 
So if I'm just a regular member of the House, then I, I, I don't want to shut down the government. I don't want to take McCarthy out. I think that gives McCarthy plenty of cover in order to keep the government funded. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing the busy congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing the busy congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice and former Senior Economic Policy Advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. Uh, Steve, you got a question? Yeah. So, so before the break, we were talking about the possibility of a shutdown because Congress fails to pass a CR. I mean, you know, over the last several decades, we've seen a number of sh- shutdowns of varying lengths, and it, it often turns into sort of this blame game of, you know, who who's responsible for shutting down the government? Um, I mean, for, from your perspective, John, you know, is, is are there any winners or losers, either politically or from a policy sense of, of shutting down the government? And what's, you know, some people seem to think it's a good idea, but I mean, you know, is it a good idea and, and should it ever happen? So my... I, I, my perspective is that there's very little evidence that government shutdowns matter at all, one way or the other. Typically, what you see in the polling response after a shutdown is that voters basically blame both sides. Why can't these people just get an agreement? Like, it just looks like a lot of noise emanating from Washington and a fight for kind of silly reasons. And voters have a hard time distinguishing whose fault that is. And the clearest example of this was in 2013 when the Republicans led by then Senator Ted Cruz and by the way, his chief of staff at the time, Chip Roy, who's now a uh, congressman from Texas leading the shutdown fight for the conservatives in the house. Um, the two of them, you know, just dragged the government into a what the, at the time was the longest shutdown in American history. And it was very clearly Republicans' fault. Like, it was like, no doubt about it. Who gets the blame for this thing? It was these two guys and the Republicans who pushed the government in this direction. And, you know, it was over whether or not they were going to fund Obamacare. And what you saw in the polling was, you know, both parties took a modest hit. It just looked like more increased dysfunction coming out of Washington, D.C. And then in 2014, what happened was the Republicans uh, won seats in the Senate and took it back. So the feedback cycle of the votes suggests, and and you've heard Chip Roy make this point recently, the feedback cycle from that incident suggested to Republicans that this actually, you know, if you stand up and fight for your constituents, you're going to end up winning electorally. But there's very little evidence from that. I mean, we're a year out from the 2024 elections. The Almost certainly the issues that settle the 24 elections are going to be radically different than these fiscal issues. And whether or not the government shuts down for a day or a week or a month in 2023, my guess will be completely irrelevant in the 24 election cycle. And by the way, there's no evidence to suggest that the reason the Republicans won the Senate in 2020 in 2014 was because of the shutdown. It has more to do with the fact it was the sixth year of a presidential term. And there's just kind of voter fatigue with the party in power at that point. So the bigger dynamics are far more important, I think, to electoral outcomes than these questions of what exactly is happening when in Washington. So can I ask a question, Bob? Is that, can I jump in real quick? Um, 
I want to talk about sort of the 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 mechanics of getting a continuing resolution through the House in the event that the Senate originates. So in order to get a continuing resolution, which is an appropriations bill through the Senate, they're going to need 60 votes. So it's going to be a bipartisan bill. And by and large, from all evidence, it's probably going to be significantly bipartisan. It's going to carry disaster aid and probably some emergency spending for Ukraine and maybe some other little goodies along the side. So it's probably going to pass with a big, huge bipartisan majority and come steaming over to the House. Now, one of the things you know in the House, you got to pass a rule before you can get onto a bill. So the question becomes then, how does uh, Speaker McCarthy pass a rule in the House that allows for debate and consideration of this big CR that and big bipartisan CR that came over from the Senate? That's going to keep the government open because by and large, you know, House rules are procedural votes, and so they tend to go along partisan lines. Uh, would he have to rely on Democratic votes to get that rule passed and get on the bill? Or do you think at the last minute he'll have enough votes among his Republicans that he doesn't have to worry about getting the rule passed? I just think there's Republicans who are going to vote no on anything. You could have, you know, um, you could depose, you could have a bill that deposes Biden and installs Donald Trump as president again. But if it doesn't hit their levels of appropriations, I, I just think they vote no, no matter what. So McCarthy is going to inevitably have to act with Democrats. And mechanically, if that's through passing a rule with Democratic votes, or if it involves putting the bill on the suspension calendar, because he knows it has, I think it's two thirds of support in the House, which it might because there could be enough Democrats who want to get this thing done, then you know he'll find a way. And the only kind of X factor is whether or not that triggers this motion to vacate the chair and that he loses his job. But inevitably, he's going to have to do this with Democratic votes. That could come on September 30th, the day before a shutdown happens, or it could come on October 20th after you know a th nearly a three-week shutdown. And they, you know, the reason that everyone, a lot of people are so pessimistic about there being a shutdown is because frequently the shutdown is necessary to prove the point that, you know, guys, we lost like, you know, Hey, look, we fought a good fight and we dug ourselves in and we showed the American people we're fighting for them. But fundamentally there just aren't the votes to pass what you all want to pass. And I know that today and, and you know that today and McCarthy knows that today, but he may need this lengthy shutdown period in order to prove that to the members. And once he's proven that point, that's when you see the Senate passed bill then pass the House, either with, you know, probably overwhelming bipartisan majorities. So the question is kind of like we said earlier, how much pain do you have to go through in order to get to that point? Because, you know, whether it's a rule or not, like he's going to have to do it with Democratic votes. There's some so Matt, fascinating there's just I want to say some mm -hmm. fascinating dynamics here because he probably will need to rely on Democratic votes ultimately in some form in the end. And it could be that his speakership would, would be challenged and it could be the Democrats would keep him in office. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not going to be able well, that, to that elect Hakeem Jeffries. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I mean, I think we hear about this motion to vacate the chair all the time. Matt Gates is threatening to throw one down daily. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a motion to vacate is. You know, how many votes does it take to to get one through and uh, whether you think it's a, a real threat to to the speaker? Yeah, I do think it's a real threat to the speaker. So the motion to vacate the chair is this kind of long-standing procedure in the House that allows, you know, 
uh, a member or a group of members can bring forward the motion. It is a privileged motion, so it has to be voted on. And what it would do is basically, you know, say that the speaker no longer, the elected speaker is no longer the speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, the Democrats changed that. This is what basically brought down Speaker Boehner in the mid 2010s. And in the House rules package earlier, earlier this year, as part of a deal to get elected speaker in the first place, uh, the Republicans changed the rules so that only one member could bring it. So it only takes one member to bring this motion up and it's a privileged motion. Previously, it was a much larger group than that. I can't remember. It might have been half the majority, I think. McCarthy was pushing for five members to be like at the minimum threshold to bring it up. And then the conservatives like Matt Gates, who you mentioned, insisted on it being one member. So all it takes is one member to bring up this motion. That would essentially just trigger a new vote. And because the the, the margins that the House Republicans are dealing with are so thin, they only have a four-seat majority. McCarthy basically needs every Republican to be aligned behind him to win a new speakership vote. That's why it took so many rounds in January for him to be installed in the first place. So the question that Bob asked, which I think is an important one, is would Democrats in this situation bail out McCarthy? Would they say, you know what, this is silly, you know, there's this motion to vacate and we should just table this thing and Democrats would vote with McCarthy supporters among Republicans to table it. And like Tory said about the House rules, those are typically pretty partisan votes where the rule only passes with majority votes. And I think that the speakership votes are very similar. So I don't see Democrats rushing to McCarthy's rescue here. They really have very little incentive to do so. And I think it actually weakens McCarthy to be a Republican speaker that's been elected by Democratic votes. And what you get in that sense is just this endless cycle of new motions being filed and a lot of very angry Republicans. So if the motion is filed, I suspect it would, I think it would be successful. McCarthy would then lose his job. And I just, I don't think, I don't think Democrats want to intervene. They don't want to, they don't want to help McCarthy at all. Those are the most, among the most partisan votes that happen in the House are the votes for the speakership. Could be a a long, long shutdown. Uh, Steve, we got about a minute left. Uh, You want to tee up a question, but we might need to go over into the next segment for the answer. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking before about that, you know, everybody gets blamed for the government shutdown. Talk about ultimate dysfunction in Washington. There's no Speaker of the House. I mean, has has McCarthy <laughs> built up enough goodwill with Democrats to simply avoid the, the the mutual embarrassment of having a completely dysfunctional House, or do, would the Democrats think they benefit from that? I think the Democrats think they benefit, and I don't think it's mutually embarrassing for them at all. It's these you know bozos in charge who can't kind of <laughs> you know lead their way out of a paper bag, and you know the Republicans will kind of put themselves in this in this. Such a dilemma, and it's going to be their job to get it out. So I think the Democrats would gleefully have complete dysfunction among the House majority and then use that as one of the things to campaign that they campaign on next year. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing the busy congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the busy congressional agenda and whether there may be a shutdown with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice and a former senior economic policy advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. 
Um, John, you know, we're talking about this uh, showdown over appropriations and whether or not they're going to be able to get the, the bills done by the end of the fiscal year, which is no. Uh, so we have to rely on a continuing resolution again. I, and if you go back to May, there was a debt limit deal. And one of the goals of the debt limit deal was to set appropriations goals for the uh, caps for the next two years. And it was hoped that that would facilitate the appropriations process. So we would not be in this situation where we were having a potential shutdown. Uh, what went wrong with that? A and B, you know, do we should we take any lessons from that about these uh, using the debt limit as leverage to try to um, force some sort of a deal? So what went wrong with that? I mean, the fundamental challenge is that the Republican majority is just so small. And when you're governing with a tiny majority, a very narrow margin, a very small faction of your own party can make things very difficult. And in this case, a very small faction of the Republicans, you know, maybe 20 to 30 of them out of the 220 elected officials, uh, sorry, out of the 435 House members, didn't like the debt limit deal, and so can make life very uncomfortable for Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be able to govern with a nearly unanimous United Republican caucus. So because you got a small group who don't like the levels agreed to in the debt limit deal, they're able to cause big problems for Kevin McCarthy. And it's basically, you know, they wanted to see further cuts than what was included in that debt limit deal. Now, for most members of Congress, the debt limit deal was pretty good. They got a modest increase in overall defense spending. They got a cap in the overall levels of appropri uh, domestic appropriations. And this comes after three or four years of big increases in overall appropriated spending that began during the pandemic. So for most members, that's pretty reasonable. But for the members who don't like it, the very small number of conservative Republicans they are using the uh, government shutdown as leverage to get deeper cuts than they are able to get in that debt limit bill. And that's why, and McCarthy's trying to appease them. And that's why we're in this situation. Tori. So uh, one of the breaking news items over the weekend is that um, uh, two sort of ideologically opposing groups of Republicans in the House got together and put together a tentative deal on a continuing resolution. Um, and it would continue funding for another month or so. Um, it would uh, keep uh, last year's funding level for defense, veterans affairs, and border security, but then it would cut the non-defense discretionary about 8%. Um, and then it, it attached uh, the House Republicans border security bill, H.R. Uh, 2. Uh, do you think that's a legitimate starting point for any kind of negotiations? Or is that something that's probably not even going to make it out of the House? So that proposal faces two fatal flaws. The first is that the Senate will never go for it. An eight percent cut in domestic discretionary spending is is far too deep. I don't think Biden would sign it. And the Senate basically can't Senate Democratic majority in the Senate can't pass it. But worse is that the deal is already being opposed by the conservative Republicans who it was designed to appease. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing some of them say, you know, oh, we'll never, you know, as long as 
Jack Smith, the DOJ special counsel, continues to prosecute former President Trump, you know, and, and we're going to fund that through an appropriations bill, I won't support it. So you've got outside agitators who are kind of pushing kind of the far right Republicans to be against even that deal, which in any other circumstance would be seen as a massive conservative victory. Um, I don't think that we're going to it doesn't look like that has the votes to pass um the 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 house but you know this is one of the big uncertainties this week if that can pass it would radically change the dynamic because it would give the republicans something to rally around and and push push on the senate so Steve? just go, going back real quickly to to the debt limit issue um you know if you if you go through history there are examples where the debt limit was used as leverage to enact some sort of legislation graham rudman hollings is a, is a you know common example from 2000 I'm sorry, from 19, 1985. Uh, and in fact, in doing some research, I discovered that there were some big social security amendments that were done back in 1972 uh, that were attached to the debt limit bill in the Senate. But I mean, you know, given recent history in terms of, you know, we did, we tried to do discretionary budget caps as part of the debt limit deal back in was that 2011. And then of course, the most recently, just this past spring, I mean, you know, has the debt limit served its purpose and we should stop trying to use it as leverage or, I mean, you know, it, from a, from a political perspective, the temptation is there because it's this forcing action that you have to, 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 to do. And it looks like a great hostage to take, but it's sort of one of those situations where, you know, I don't think anybody really, really wants us to default on the debt. And given the fact that, you know, anything the house or Senate does, they can always undo later you know, do you really, is it really leverage at all? I mean, what, what's your thought? Yeah, I think it's still leverage. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it you know, as disruptive as it could potentially be, um, and as ugly as things can look during debt limit battles, which is unsettled, can be unsettling for markets and ge generally makes sort of people nervous about the U.S. repaying its debts and so forth. Um, I mean, obviously, these must-pass bills represent massive points of leverage. And in 2020, uh, or earlier this year, um, when they passed this debt limit bill, they used it to leverage spending cuts. And I don't think they would have gotten a flat, a basically flat funding in FY24 if they didn't have some ability to leverage it. And honestly, I was surprised they didn't get more. I kind of went into this year expecting that they were going to let the Republicans in the House would leverage the debt limit and would probably end up with something like a 10-year caps deal just like they got in the 2011 budget control act and i was a little surprised that they settled for this two-year caps deal um when they i it, it felt like people you know the Biden administration was scared enough they would have given some more um so i think the debt limit is a effective form of leverage it it it's it obviously comes at a price and 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 as long as people believe that you know, in this in this this year, there was a general belief that the Republicans would go over the um, what you know the so-called X date, where the government wouldn't have enough money necessarily to pay its debts, and that caused some spooked some people out. But it turned out that was not true, and McCarthy actually was willing to kind of accept a half a loaf deal in order to avoid the X date. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, uh going from the debt limit to another kind of action-forcing event. Um, you know, the trust fund insolvency date has been moving closer and closer on Social Security. It's actually been staying in place. We've just been moving closer and closer to it. And uh, Medicare Part A uh, has a similar uh, proximity to uh, uh, insolvency. And 
you know, I'm wondering if those are still too far away for policymakers to pay attention to, even though they're both close to the 10 year budget window. Do you think that those can serve that the trust fund insolvency dates may serve as some sort of catalyst for bipartisan reform efforts on uh, those two programs or um, are we likely to see just sort of uh, kicking the can down the road again by using general revenues or something else? I'd be really surprised if they didn't end up kicking the can down the road by kind of break by filling the trust fund with general revenues. Um, I also would be really surprised to see Congress act in advance. And it feels like the catalyst has got to be some some kind of acute pain that will be felt in the near term in Social Security. That acute pain would be, you know, cutting checks being cut, like having to cut the amount that's going out to retirees because they're running out of money in the, in the trust fund. Um, you know, you always have the option of backfilling the trust funds with general revenue. And then, you know, I think probably the most important action forcing event on the near term horizon when it comes to fiscal policy is going to be the expiration of the Trump tax cuts, but which happens on January 1st of 2026. Uh, so after the next presidential election, but the reality is that both parties are mostly going to be aligned around extending those tax cuts and not doing any and making the fiscal picture look worse and not doing anything about the long term solvency of Social Security and Medicare. There have been several reform efforts in Medicare that were successful in the last several years and the last in recent history. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is one of them where they did you know cut some payments to Medicare. Uh, the um, price reductions uh, the, the price caps are on drugs. Uh, that passed last year, uh, you know, does reduce spending in Medicare. So there's there's some evidence, but those are not bipartisan. So there's some evidence that they, you know the Congress does have the will to you know cut provider payments in Medicare that should help with solvency. But these are really really challenging political issues, and there's no consensus around how to do it. So I think it's going to take a crisis or near crisis to force action here. Well, uh, I hate to say I, I agree with you, but I, I wish I didn't. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tory Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice. Um, Steve, let me go to you first. Yeah, so so we were just talking how, you know, it looks like the government's going to have to shut down before we can pass the appropriation bills. And it looks like we're going to have to reach a crisis point uh, in terms of the Social Security checks not going out before we're willing to reform Social Security. So, you know, you've got these sort of doom and gloom scenarios. But but when it comes to tax cuts, it looks like Congress is more than willing to to extend extend those. And um, does Congress have a problem here of, of preferring to eat dessert and not not at spinach? I mean, what, what's going on? They, they, they like the easy stuff, but not the hard stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I think these are hard. You know, the reason that the U.S. is running five or six percent deficit annual deficits as a share of GDP is because there, there's a bunch of reasons for it. But one of them is that members of Congress fundamentally like spending and they like they don't like taxes. And over the last several years, uh, you know, the trend has been starting with the Bush tax cuts, 
and then extended in the Obama era and then kind of doubled down on in the Trump era, the, the trend has been to reduce the tax share of GDP um, or keep it flat, really, while at the same time increasing spending on defense, increasing spending on the COVID response, um, and increasing programmatic spending overall while you have these two big entitlement programs that consume more and more uh, of federal budget resources with the aging population. And that's a nice equilibrium for members of Congress because they don't have to make any hard choices. And during that entire period, you've seen the borrowing rates the U.S. government faces drop to near zero because the Fed was keeping rates low and the rest of the world saw and continues to see U.S. Treasuries as a great bet. So it's really easy for the government to raise cheap debt, which is a signal to lawmakers they should keep borrowing. And you know, I think that the Trump tax cuts, when they expire, nobody wants to be in a position to increase taxes by even a penny on anyone who might vote against them. And so you're probably going to see and you know, 80% of households saw a tax cut in 2017. And I'd be really surprised to see those tax cuts not extended when the time comes for them to expire. You, you mentioned interest rates. Obviously, you know, we had almost a decade and a half of ultra low, near zero interest rates. Since inflation took off um, in the last year and a half, two years, uh, interest rates have been going up. I mean, is that going to be the wake up call finally that now that interest costs are, are rising and the, the cost of basically financing the debt. I mean, you know, with 30 trillion in debt, every 1% interest rate is an extra $300 billion. So, you know, is something, are interest rates going to be the driving force that cause some change or or we're going to hope the Fed gets inflation under control and interest rates come back down? I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think that at a high level, we're sort of entering a new era where ultra cheap money is over. And even if the Fed can get inflation under control, you're unlikely to see rates drop to the level they've been over the last 10 years. So if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's projections of interest share of the federal budget and interest share of GDP, they both go up, which means that more resources are going just to serve the debt that's already been borrowed. And it leaves you with less resources to do other things unless you're borrowing a lot more or increasing taxes. Um, so, but we don't know exactly how this new era is going to play out, how policymakers respond and how acute the political pressure is on policymakers to control spending or raise taxes given these higher interest costs. But I think this is a really interesting new era. And a lot of current lawmakers have never operated in this kind of environment where either fiscal issues were top of mind for voters, or it was just really expensive to borrow and therefore you know, it makes them less less able to do so. Um, so this is a new storyline that's going to play out over the next five or 10 years. I don't really know how that storyline moves from sort of the federal government kind of, you know, a page in the in the budget to lawmakers actual kind of incentives to act, but it'll be an interesting thing to watch. So, right. yeah, I wanted to try and tie everything together here. I know it seems like we've covered a bunch of different topics, but, you know, in my head, they're kind of related. You know, we talked about how I know gov- Congress can't complete the appropriations process on time. You know, we can't get a continuing resolution across the the line that keeps the government open. I mean, we can't get Congress to act on on Social Security and Medicare reform, even though we know that these are the big drivers of our deficits. We're going to pass an irresponsible tax, a continuation of a tax cut in a, in a couple of years. So, you know, John, your job uh, is is to analyze political risk 
on behalf of your clients. So I'm curious, what are you, what are you saying to your clients? What are your clients saying to you about political risk here in the United States? Are any of these concerns of them or to them or are they worrying about other matters? So I think there's kind of three big storylines coming out of the, that are related related to this that our clients are tracking that we do we deal with. The first is like a very short-term storyline. Which what's the fiscal impulse going to be in fiscal year 24? How much does the government contribute to overall economic growth? And in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023, that answer was a lot. And you know, because the government spent a lot of money in order to fight COVID and, and a lot of that money kind of still lingering and sloshing around the system, which is of course fueling inflation. In t- FY24, which begins in October, the question is going to be, you know, looks, you know, they, they've agreed to flat, mostly flat funding. Will there be additional cuts beyond that? And there is this mechanism in the debt limit bill that says if the government's operating under a continuing resolution in January, then there's an automatic 1% across the board that's triggered on appropriated spending, which would be about $180 billion taken out of the economy next year uh, over a, a relatively short period of time. So that actually would be contractionary for economic growth. So that's one thing they're watching. The second thing is the longer term picture. And this is less interesting to a lot of our clients who are just focused on the kind of next six to 12 months. But there is this question of, you know, at what the US is on an unsustainable fiscal path. And can it get it? Can it write? Can it write itself? Now, the advantage the U.S. has is that it borrows in the globe's reserve currency. There's a ton of demand for dollar-denominated debt, and uh, you know anybody that you know any of the you know, petrostates in the Middle East, whenever they sell oil, they want to put that money somewhere safe. They put it in U.S. Treasuries, and that kind of supercharges demand for U.S. Treasuries and makes it easy for the U.S. to borrow. Does that shift at some point? Is there some new alternative that emerges that makes it harder for the U.S. to borrow? Most people say the answer is no. We're, we're decades away from that happening. But it's a long-term story to watch as the U.S. fiscal situation gets worse. And the third thing that I think a lot of our clients are paying attention to is, is there some kind of institutional erosion in the U.S. that's meaningful? And this isn't really related to the fiscal picture. This has more to do with whether or not uh, the outcome of the 2024 election, uh, you know, if President Biden wins or if former President Trump comes back, what does that mean for the ind- questions like the independence of the Federal Reserve or um, the independence of the Department of Justice? And there's questions like that. But those are sort of third order questions. And the much more immediate ones are about this uh, fiscal impulse issue in, in the next fiscal year. Got it. What uh, you know, we we touched on this uh, before in in uh, answer to to Steve's question, but we, you know, one of the big questions is uh, everybody was expecting a recession. We thought we would have it by now, uh, even earlier, and uh, the economy keeps chugging along. Um, has the Fed been successful? Do you think in engineering a soft landing, or are there still some? Uh, pitfalls out there it's hard to say you made the you know the, the, the cliche is that the fed uh fed operations operate with a lag so typically it's you know in the past it's been thought of as like nine months there's some arguments that suggest that the transmission mechanism between interest rate policy and real economic activity has shortened and so we would see the results of fed rate hikes or cuts much quicker than in previous cycles um but it's also the case that you know that the credit tightening cycle from higher interest rates so far has shown very little negative impacts on the real economy. Uh, Job growth is still solid. Wage growth is still solid enough. 
And, um, and so it's, and because the, 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 the economic boom of the coming out of COVID wasn't really driven by loose credit, wasn't really driven by low rates, then increasing borrowing costs hasn't really hurt the economy that much. There are some who think that the recession risk is really receding. And while you may think see in 24 a slightly softer economy, you're unlikely to see large layoffs or massive slowing in job creation. Um, but there are others who say, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. And this is could be a story for early 2024. Uh, so I don't really have a view on those questions. I think it's certainly possible that the effects of the Fed tightening cycle um, don't materialize until next year. And the most important, but but so far, things look pretty good. Um, and if the Fed pauses at the upcoming meeting, which seems very likely, um, then you know they can pause, take a look at some of the data and see if they've done enough or if they have to go higher with rates. Well, uh, we'll get uh, we'll have to follow that as uh, as will the administration and the Congress uh, if they can get get over their CR problems in <laughs> in the coming weeks. Uh, but that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. I want to thank our guest this week, John Lieber, managing director of Eurasia Group's United States practice. Thanks too to Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for joining me. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.